Put your seatbelt on. We got a long ways to go and a short time to get there. I want to ask you a question. How do you find rest when your work is never done? What do you do when life's labors are an apparent unending daily and ever repeating cycle? I cut the grass yesterday only to notice this morning that the nut sedge, which is an invasive species of undesirable weed, is already a half inch higher than all the surrounding good grass. Vanity of vanities. You do the laundry only to do it again a week later. You cut the grass only to have it to cut it again this time next week. You plan, prepare, cook, and clean up after meals only to have to repeat this cycle meal after meal, day after day, week after week, and month after month. It seemed like when we had small children at home that the ubiquitous sound of our home was the washer, the dryer, and the dishwasher, like all the time, all right? There was no white noise. And as someone has even said about raising small children, the days are long, but the years are short. Our work is literally never finished. But the answer, God's good answer, is found in a distinct day, one in seven, not simply one-seventh of our time, because that fails to give the scope of this day that we call the Sabbath. But a day here that's different in character and focus than the other six days, yes, we call it the Sabbath. But perhaps a better phrase in our day for the Sabbath, or for the Christian Sabbath, is Lord's Day. It was John, the Apostle John, that used this in Revelation 1 and verse 10. He said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. We also have two other examples in the New Testament where that one day of rest in seven shifted from the last of a seven-day cycle to the first day of the week, since the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. And so Luke's record in Acts 20 and verse 7 implies this shift. He writes, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, there's Luke writing in one of what we call the we passages, not we as in Scottish we, but we as in us, we together, gathered to break bread. We were gathered on the first day. And then Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 16, too, does the same. He says, on the same, or on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And we may make the case that in both instances, that first day of the week, was the corporate gathering by the believers on the Christian Sabbath, or what we may now call the Lord's Day. On that day, the believers of the early church participated in all the normal elements of worship as we are in our present day. Prayer or prayers. 
the corporate singing of what Paul tells us we're to engage in with each other, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The teaching of the word as central to our worship. That's why the pulpit's here and not off to the side. Okay. Even baptism, the receiving of new covenant members into our fellowship, communion, the confirmation of our continuing as covenant, new covenant members, disciples of Jesus, and then even the very giving of our tithes and offerings so that this little box here and the one at the back there is the reminder that is, the psalmist says in Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Well, I want us to consider this morning the fourth of the ten words given at Sinai. And they codify this important word and enduring commandment, but it's not the beginning of the idea of Sabbath or a day of rest. And it's important if you've never thought about that, that you understand that principally from creation, from those early days, from the very first two chapters of Genesis, that we have at least three ordinances that we call creation ordinances. And you'll know that blessing is associated with each of these. The first is marriage and procreation. The second is work or labor, and the third is rest. And if you fail to grasp the significance, if we fail to grasp the significance of these three creation ordinances, we will drift from God's design for life as we know it here, okay? But first, we're going to look this morning in Exodus 20, even as David's already read, and I'm going to reread briefly this fourth of the ten words given at Sinai. So we speak, we speak of this as this important word and enduring commandment. Verse 8, Exodus 20. Remember, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, or literally to consecrate it, to set it apart. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord, your God. And you see that phrase, to the Lord, your God, repeating the title, the Lord your God, that we find in the prologue to the Ten Commandments in verse 2. And he continues in verse 10, On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gate. Some of you might notice, by the way, that it doesn't say your wife. It just says you, your son, or your daughter. And I wondered if the reason it doesn't say wife is the Lord knew it was impossible for most gals to get their work done in six days. And so he doesn't mention it. And of course, that's not the case. We're going to see, though, from that, that portion, from the second half of 10 on, the significance of even the leadership for the Lord's day within families. And he goes on to say in verse 11, as he grounds this commandment, he, if you will, he finds it 
in creation itself, he says, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Four points this morning from our outline, and I want us to consider particularly, first, the redemptive context of the fourth commandment. Secondly, the foundation and the precedent for this commandment from creation. Third, the essence and obligation of the commandment. And then fourthly, the anticipation of the Sabbath. Let me give this to you again. And what I'm looking at will be gone next week, but this morning, the theological basis and foundation for the Sabbath commandment, and then in two weeks on the 28th, to, we're going we're gonna to walk this out, particularly the application of this. How do we live this out in our present day, live this out in our families and in the life of our body? Well, first, then, the redemptive context. This word or these words, as you read them, bring us to where we remind ourselves they were given by a redeemer to a redeemed people. It's really the answer to all important question. What is the context of this commandment or, or the context of all ten of the commandments of the moral law given here to Israel at Sinai? And we've been repeating this and that's very intentional, like hitting a baseball, taking a hundred swings at a ball to try to hit a fastball. It's to really reinforce this. The context, brothers and sisters, is the words of the covenant-keeping God, known by his covenant name in these four letters, Y-H-W-H, Lord, all caps from hereafter, the personal covenantal name of God by which he revealed himself first there, not, not initially, but then to Moses in the wilderness, though Moses uses that name from the very beginning of the book of Genesis, but he reveals himself a name so holy that the Jews would not even express, they would simply say Adonai, when they'd see those four Hebrew letters for the name of God. And it was he, moved by his covenant love for his people, who spoke all these words. Inscribed by his finger on the two covenant tablets, but with this amazing and defining prologue in the first two verses of chapter 20, where if we miss the covenant heart and redeeming love of God, then we'll misapply and we'll push away the covenant law that we find in the 10 words. In fact, Tim Keller says that on this broad swath of land, the breadth of the commandments of the, even on how we respond to the gospel, there's, there's two errors. And in both of these errors, we're making a religion of our own. On one side is antinomianism. We say we want Jesus, we want him on our terms. We want him with no constraints. We want him with no law. And on the other side of this broad plateau where there's antinomianism, the great error on this side, on the other side 
is the error of Pharisaism. Libertinism, antinomianism, Pharisaism. We believe that by the works of the law rather than by faith through the gift of grace, undeserved, free, rich, rooted in the person and works of our great prophet and priest and King Jesus Christ, we would be right with God. Not so, not so. And so the prologue, God says, I'm the Lord your God. It was I who brought you out of the land of Egypt. It was I who brought you out of the house of slavery. He's Yahweh. He's the one who says, I am who I am, the eternally uncreated and unchanging one who brings his covenant people out of the foreign and alien land of Egypt, the unpromised land, and by supernatural signs and wonders, not magical. Jamie pointed out that I used magical about three or four weeks ago in a sermon. Forgive me for that. There's nothing magical about God bringing his people out of Egypt. Supernatural? Miraculous? Yes. Magical? No. Foot in mouth in the worst kind of way. But it's the Lord. The Lord their God who rescued them out of the house of slavery and the tyranny of Pharaoh's oppressive thumb to wander in the land, yes, for 40 years before he'd bring them into the promised land. But why? And why did they wander? That he might bring them into the good land. So bringing them out, only to bring them in to that good land promised to their forefathers, to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And he's promised, he's rescued rather, he's rescued his covenant people And now he will express his will for them, particularly through these two tablets and ten words that reflect his own character and holiness. Why? Not so that his redeemed and rescued people might earn his favor, but that they might express and that might reflect the character of the God whose favor they already know. The God who saves. That great covenant-keeping Lord who was infallibly, unfailingly committed to their good. And it was a good expression in this fourfold program of blessing that God had given to Abram and his descendants in Genesis 12. He said, I'll give you, number one, I'll give you countless descendants Offspring as numerous as the stars in the heavens and as numerous as the grains of sand upon the seashore, even if you could count them. Second, he said, I'll make your name great. Third, I'll give you your own land, a land fertile and abundant, flowing with milk and honey. And said, and fourth, he said, I'll bless you. I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. And in you will all the nations of the earth be blessed or they will bless themselves. You see, it was God. 
the sovereign Lord who's rescued his covenant people from the land of Egypt and from the house, the bondage of slavery. He, God alone in all the glory and strength of his saving power and purposes, God, the Lord, their God, he is the context of the Ten Commandments. Someone was reminding us in Sunday school this morning of John Piper's book, God is the Gospel. God then is the context of the command of the Ten Commandments. And therefore he is the context of the fourth word and about remembering the Sabbath and resting. And this is a word. This is a commandment that is still our precious possession and the Christian's duty and delight to the present day. We ought not to be thinking of nine commandments. Do not make the error of excising this or feeling like you need to apologize for this fourth commandment. No. And there's a reason I believe that today, I'm sure there's many, but at least one, that this commandment, if you will, has fallen on hard times. And that is because you and I believe that time is ours. We forget that time is God's. But we think it's ours, that we're sovereign over our time and schedule. But God, the, Lord, the sovereign Lord, makes his claim upon all our time. And if you've never thought about this, but peculiarly, the seventh day. He says it's a Sabbath holy to the Lord your God. And so this brings us to the second point, our second thing here, and that is the foundation and precedent from creation. To simplify it, we can say it this way. Because the Lord rested, we may rest. That's the foundation and the precedent of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was not new as the fourth commandment. It was Bruce Ray that wrote this. He said, when we think about this idea of remember, it's not simply... Oh, all of a sudden I realize that the password to this email account is so-and-so. It's a remembering with the purpose of living and acting upon it. It's impactful in a way that simply remembering a password to an email account or your phone number is not impactful at all in the same way. This is what Bruce Ray says. He says, remember, this word remember reaches all the way back to the time of creation, the very beginning of time. The idea of the Sabbath, he writes, therefore did not originate with any man or any group of men, but with God. This is very important for us to recognize. He goes on and says, the Sabbath is not Moses' Sabbath, as some seem to think, nor is it Israel's holy day nor as others insist. Rather, it is God's Sabbath, God's holy day. He is the one who brought it into being, and he is the one who is honored by it. I want us to see in verse 11 of chapter 20 here, the word order. It's identical to the order of the record in Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3. God completed or finished all his work. Then God rested on the seventh day. And then we read, therefore, therefore, halfway through verse 11, 
And that's a word of cause or inference. The Lord blessed the seventh day called the Sabbath. And he made it holy. And there is a word play in here. This Hebrew word, Shabbat, for to cease or to rest or desist, plays in with the word Shabbat, the ordinal seventh, first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh. So there's this word play together here. But the point is, that we see these four verbs of action strung together so that they're identical in order in Exodus 20 as they are in Genesis 2. Here they are. God finished his work. God rested on the seventh day. God blessed the seventh day. And God made it holy. And we find both what God did, but also how he gifted this day as a sign of the Sinaitic covenant. And that's why I had David read from Exodus 31, verses 12 through 17. But another way we can think of him making that one day holy was that he sanctified it by declaring it distinct, a special and unique day different from the other's days. Some of you know about my coffee cup from Suzhou, China. It's like It's not simply special, but there's a sense in which it's not just special, but it's set apart. And normally, if you come and you're a first-time guest to my house and you're drinking coffee, I'm probably going to offer it for you to drink out of this cup because it's my most favorite cup. And I want to share with you what's special in that way. And God then designates this day as not simply special, but sacred, set apart Holy. And he set it apart, which is the very essence of holiness. And so by this, God in his rest, not a rest of exhaustion, but a rest of cessation from his creative labor. A rest of satisfaction where each of those first five days were like, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good times five. And on that very last day, we read these words, he saw that it was very good. And so God's rest is not a rest of exhaustion, but a rest of cessation. Of his created labor. And so in a sense. Since the end of that first. That sixth day of creation. God. Has been on this eternal Sabbath. Because he hasn't needed to repeat that. But what he's done for us. Is institute a repeatable and perpetual. Weekly pattern of work rest. Work rest. Work rest that would provide a picture of the true rest that's ultimately and only available by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we saw earlier, after our Lord's resurrection, then the church converted this pattern instead of work, rest, work, rest, now, finally, to rest, work, rest, work, which will end up with a final climactic, punctuated rest in our Lord Jesus.
Third, I want us to see then the essence and the obligation of the command in verses 8 through 10. We've seen so far the redemptive context. We've seen the foundation and precedent from creation. Now I want us to see the essence and obligation of this commandment. And it's an interconnected essence. So we may not fear separating the elements of the essence. I want us to see there's, there's significance here when you see the length of this commandment. First, unlike any of the other commandments, we are called to a unique duty with respect to the Sabbath. You'll notice that eight of the 10 commandments are negative. They are prohibition. You shall not. Only the fourth with this lead word remember and the fifth with the lead word honor are positive on the surface of them in character. Now with each of the eight, it's still evident even by, if you look in the shorter or larger catechism, which is in the, the back of the Trinity hymnal in the pew in front of you, in the chair in front of you, each of the commandments has a positive dimension of what's required and a negative of what's forbidden. But here, on the face of it, is this idea of remember, to remember the Sabbath day, to call it to mind as a perpetual memorial. And so, in a sense, the very reference to creation is part of the basis for a special mindset of remembrance. That's why if you'll simply walk outside, you'll have a daily, hourly, minute-by-minute reminder as you see green trees and puffy white clouds and a blue sky and the sun up there rising in the east and setting in the west. You'll have a reminder of the one who made every sphere and filled them and that he made it all in the span of six days And then he rested in satisfaction from his labors. So first, we have this unique duty to remember the Sabbath. Second, we're told that the purpose of the sanctified, intentional remembering is to keep it holy. And it's fulfilled in the thrust of the activity of the seventh day. No work and rest. And that's the greater priority, the focus, rather than six days, you must work. I like the translation by the Net Bible in the way it uses the language of permission. Listen to this. It says, for six days you may labor and do all your work. That's the granting of permission. The Bible emphasizes the dignity and necessity of hard, meaningful, sweat of your brow, God-glorifying work in other places. That's why Solomon says in Proverbs 6, Take heed to the ant. Though having no chief officer or ruler stores up today and lays aside surplus for tomorrow's withering winter. But here the primary emphasis is on not working on the seventh day and resting in imitation of the God who made all things in us. Now, to be fair, I think if we're involved in meaningful work, and by meaningful work, we do not necessarily mean a job with a paycheck. Some of you no longer receive a paycheck, but you're still able to work. 
to do things for the positive benefit of others. As one made in the image of God who bear his divine image. And here's, here's a caution. This Sabbath day, the idea of rest on the Lord's day is not a rest of inactivity. It's an active rest. It's a Godward rest of corporate worship, private worship, acts of mercy, and deeds of necessity. I want to read to you from question 60 from the Shorter Catechism. Here's the question. How is the Sabbath to be sanctified? Here's the answer. The Sabbath is to be sanctified by a holy resting all the day, even from such worldly employments and recreations as are lawful on other days, and spending the whole time in the public and private exercises of God's worship, except so much as is to be taken up in the works of necessity and of mercy. Do not worry, in two weeks, we'll lay out some more, get very in the nitty-gritty of the applications of how we live this out in our families and in our churches, and I would say as a witness to the culture who thinks it's my weekend rather than to think that every weekend is actually the Lord's weekend. Every day is God's day, and particularly this day, this first day of the week for us in the post Resurrection era is the Lord's day. Today, children, this is the Lord's day. It's Sunday, but it's the Lord's day. And I want us to see thirdly, the essence of this command is a communal call for homes and households together to honor the Lord's day, individually and corporately. From the very youngest member to the oldest, from the head, husbands and fathers, all the way to dependent children. And when you read the phrase in verse 10, on it you shall not do any work, you will discover that this phrase does not stand in isolation. It's followed by and it's connected to every person under the sphere of a single home. And brothers and sisters, let me remind you, every Lord's Day, there's a group of people that leave their homes or their apartments and they're single, they're not married. And what happens on this Lord's Day, this day of rest, is they anticipate coming together with you and me, those of us who are married, who wake up in the morning and can talk to another person in our home, in our bathroom, in our kitchen, at our breakfast table. And so that every single person as in single, not married, when they come on the Lord's Day here as an application, they get you as family. They get you as brother and sister. And so when you don't come, it's easy to come and get out of bed and come and be here on the Lord's Day. It's just easier not to, isn't it? They get you. And you get them. And they get this foretaste. They get this anticipation of the people of God in eternity adoring Christ Jesus, the Lord. There's this implicit application that for when we come together, we give the gift of real community, 
of one holy Catholic church when we come together on the Lord's Day. Finally, I just want us to think briefly about the anticipation of the Sabbath. We've seen the context, the foundation, the essence of this unique and enduring commandment. But what does it point to? What greater reality or realities does it anticipate? And I want to just call this final point the anticipation of the Sabbath. I want us to focus on the realities that the Sabbath and its rest anticipate and picture for us. First of all, it's this. We have no rest. You have no rest apart from the rest that we find in Christ Jesus. It was Augustine that said it so well. He said, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts find no rest until they find rest in thee. It's in this way that we can think of Jesus as the true Lord of the Sabbath. And you'll notice how he connects us with creation. He says, not the Son He doesn't say the son of David. He says the son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath. He rules rest. Jesus rules rest because only he can give a man, a woman, a child true rest. Only he can give true soul rest when we come to him to embrace him by faith and we cast all that we are upon him to receive grace and mercy. We take the white flag of surrender and we say not just today, not just tomorrow, but every day in a seven-day weekly cycle, every dimension of my life, Lord Jesus, is yours. And Paul says, he died for us that you and I might no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again for us. Nothing but Jesus Christ will do for the weary. There's no other substitute. And the rest that finds its initiation in imitation of God's rest at creation. The rest that finds its initiation in imitation of God's rest at creation is a rest that finds its completion in anticipation of God's work at redemption. Because his is an accomplished and applied redemption, I may rest in him. You may rest in him. We may deliver Jesus' own words as part of our free offer of the gospel from Matthew 11. Come to me. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and, I will, and you will find rest. For your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There's a final point and we'll be done. Is that you and I, brothers and sisters, those of you who feel tired, you recognize you're not as young as you once were. 
You just don't have the same energy, but you want to make every day, every hour count for the Lord. You amen when you read Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, Therefore be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil in vain, your, your, your toil in the Lord is not in vain. And you say, oh Lord, thank you. You feel like you're running out of steam. You may anticipate rest. As we actively rest each Lord's day, we may have a current, a current enjoyment of resting from our works. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians 2 that it's by faith, not works after all that we're saved. But we enjoy the anticipation of a future day of resting from our legitimate exertions of labor in the gospel. And it's why the author of the book of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 4 verses 9 and 10. He says, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. And this is why we read in Revelation 14 of a heavenly voice saying, write this. He said, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Are you in Christ Jesus this morning? Are you? Then you have rest. For he is your ultimate Sabbath rest. He is the one who has accomplished redemption for you and who still works on your behalf, interceding daily as your perfect, faithful, risen, exalted, ascendant, great high priest who prays without ceasing at the right hand of God for you. Even now, at this moment, did I say that? You may rest. Oh, may the Marthas among us, may we recognize that we can rest. The Lord of the Sabbath, he says, hush, be still. Know that I am God. Maybe some of you are not in Christ. If you are you're living a restless life. Rest, R-E-S-T hyphen, rest, life. I invite you. I beg you. I urge you. Put everything off. Aim for this one thing. That you will give yourself no rest until you find your rest in him who says, come to me, all you who weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest.